0: Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter one. We'll be verses 12 to 26 this morning. As you guys flip there, let me just remind you guys, uh, our small groups uh, kicked off last week, but this upcoming Tuesday night is the first night that groups will really be having the entirety of the night together. And so if you haven't jumped in yet, uh, this upcoming week is the perfect time. Uh, things just barely began last week, and so we'd love for you guys to be here. Tuesday night, Southwood, 630 to 830. Uh, we'd love for you guys to be a part of that time. You guys can either sign up uh, online or you can even just show up Tuesday night and sign up. So we'd love for you guys to be here. But Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, if you guys want to follow along with me. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything. But with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks for your word. Um, Father, I thank you that you have uh, not left us without witness, that you've not left us without your revelation and without your word. Father, I thank you that you have spoken to us, and I pray this morning, even as we look at it, Lord, I pray that your word would ring true to us. I pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would allow us to grasp it and understand it. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are responsive to you, Lord, and I pray that you would use me however you see fit. I pray that you would give us just a richness as we gather around your word this morning for just a brief time. I pray that you would remove distractions and different things and concerns and anxieties and allow us just to hear your word, uh, to meet with you. Father, we so desperately need you. We need your presence. We need your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning in a powerful way, that you would allow your word to be powerful in our lives and in our hearts, and that you would transform us through it this morning. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Uh, one of the things about me is uh, you guys may not realize, even though I have a two-year-old, I have always been and still remain deathly afraid of infants. All right, uh, a lot of our friends are constantly having babies, and we always go and it had the same scene that occurs in the hospital. We see their baby, which they think is precious, and um, usually is okay. Um, but then they ask me if I want to hold their baby, and I have kind of come to a place where I just realize I, I don't want to hold their baby, and, and I proceed to tell them. I'm good. I'm fine. You know? Uh, uh, and one of the reasons why is not just because I fear crying, but I, I remember hearing a story through college that has stuck with me and, and just reaches the depths of my heart. Uh, I had a good, good friend in college who was babysitting one time and she was watching a little infant and this infant was a boy and he got squirmy and all of a sudden he began to squirm and he, she, she began to lose her grip of him. And in fumbling with the boy, all of a sudden she uh, began to flip and he got airborne at some point in some way. And it eventually ended up flipping through the air, landing between a couch and a wall all right now the baby was completely fine but the result for me was i want no part of holding babies all right i just have been terrified thinking risk reward right there's a reward of, of friends thinking, hey, you love my baby, but then the risk of if I drop the baby, this isn't going to be good for our friendship, right? And, and so for for a lot of my life, and even to this day, I am still deathly afraid of infants, all right? My own infant and my own responsibility is a little bit different, but with anyone else's infant, I've been terrified. And I remember a couple years ago when we got ready to have our little girl, I remember someone, uh, knowing my fear, uh, sent me a, an email for with a series of just classic how-tos of, of handling a baby, all right? Uh, just some basic do's and some don'ts. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen these before, but, you know, if you ever have a chance to babysit or if you're ever working in the nursery or maybe you have a niece or nephew, these might be helpful to you guys. They were incredibly helpful to me. And some of them may be common sense for you guys, but they were huge for me. In terms of lifting a baby, <laughs> it, is, it is good to hold from the neck and the back, but not just to lift from the head. Some of you guys are laughing because you're like, of course, all right? But I was like, oh, that's, that's really helpful. That's great. Or maybe exercising a baby, all right? It's good to work the legs like a bicycle, but uh, bench press, not good for a baby, right? I love the little coach over the baby, like screaming, right? Helping a baby teeth, all right? Uh, in case you've ever wondered this, good with a passy, not good with your old gym shoe. Just FYI, classic do's and don'ts. How about calming a baby? It's good to hold the baby and calm them. That might have gone over the line, I don't know, but whiskey, not good for a baby, all right? How about bonding with the baby, right? You know, sweet, sweet, gentle talk, but no coffee lattes at Starbucks, right? Last one. When waking a baby, best to, <laughs> I'm totally losing you guys, all right, it's best to speak gently and arouse them to sleep and not blow an air horn in their face, Right? You guys are all laughing because these are just absolutely obvious, right? These do's and don'ts of handling and caring for a baby are completely obvious and common sense to all of us, right? None of us are going, oh, I never thought of that, right? You know, None of us are, in a sense, caught off guard or going, that really isn't what my instincts and my intuition told me, right? And in many things of life, not just handling a baby, I think most of life, honestly, often is just common sense, right? Much of life really is just things we grasp by instinct and by intuition, things that don't really blow us out of the water. And yet really when it comes to the spiritual life, and we're going to look this morning in Philippians chapter 1, what we're going to see is that much of the spiritual life really is about a set of paradoxes, right? Many of the things that are true in the spiritual arena are not things that you just grasp by intuition and instincts. The things that defy common sense and much of what is true of God, of you and I, and of the spiritual arena really are things that you and I do not grasp by common sense. In fact, common sense defies these realities. Philippians 1 verses 12 to 26, Paul is going to highlight for you and I a series of paradoxes uh, that are going to be absolutely critical for you and I to grasp. They define the spiritual arena, they define a walk with God, and they define how God is moving and working in our lives. And really, as we look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, Paul is going to begin, and this section is really much of an update or a progress report. Remember in verse 12, notice what Paul says. He says, Brethren, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Uh, This section, this this part of the letter really is just a simple progress report. It's a midterm evaluation. It's hey, hey guys, here's what's going on with me, here's what's going on in this uh, mission that we've collectively come alongside of each other with. If you guys have been with us the last few weeks, we've noticed and we've talked that Paul is writing to a church that really, this letter is essentially a a thank you note. It is a church that has joined with him and they have formed a close-knit team and they've collectively committed themselves to a costly mission. They've committed themselves to the desire and the objective to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known throughout the world. And it's a mission that has not just gotten Paul arrested, but it's a mission that comes at great cost. And yet they said, hey, sign us up, we're in. We're completely in with you on declaring this message of good news, this message of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the free offer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The Philippian church says, hey, we're in, we are in, alongside of you in this task. We'll, we'll support you in this mission. And here Paul is, and he's going to find out as we look at this book, that Paul has been arrested and he's under house arrest. He's appealed to Caesar and he's waiting a trial in Rome. It's really the, the context for this letter. And so Paul writes to them and he says to the Philippians, Hey, I want you to know, in a sense, I'm okay. I want you guys to know about my circumstances. And in talking about his circumstances, you and I are going to see really, in many ways, an irony of circumstances. Paul is going to unfold for them really what his circumstances look like, feel like, and then ultimately what God is doing with them. And yet, there's going to be great irony in this because what we're going to see on the surface would seem completely preposterous for what Paul will say is actually going on. In fact, as he talks of his chains, what we're going to find is that he's going to speak in, in different ways of the constraints of his chains. That he's been arrested, and therefore there's been a limitation seemingly on what God is doing and, and on his freedom on his life. Notice he says in verse 13: So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian garden to everyone else. Simply put, Paul had been arrested and he faced an opposition that was external. Uh, the entire Roman Empire, in a sense, and, and those that were in power and in and authority had, had pitted themselves and were opposed to him, his ministry, and his message. They wanted no part of it, and so he's in prison, and he's waiting trial for this message of hope, this message of peace, this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been pitted against, he's opposed externally, but it's not just external. There's also internal opposition. Notice what he says in verse 15. Notice who else is opposed to him. This, is, this blows me away. Verse 15, he says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. He says that there are some out there who are declaring the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and they're doing it out of strife and out of envy against Paul. <laughs> Why? He goes on and he says later on in verse 17, these people proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking it caused me distress in my imprisonment. There are some within the church that had gone out and they were declaring a, the message of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, not because they wanted people to hear but only because they wanted to turn the heat up on Paul. Paul had been arrested for this message, so he's wasting away in prison, awaiting a trial. And there were some, seemingly a ton of, a plethora of people that were going out, proclaiming this message, not because they really cared about the message, but because they saw an opening, and frankly, a job opening. They saw Paul, in a sense, removed from the picture, removed from the playing field, and they saw their own opportunity to emerge into the spot and the position that Paul had as leader of the church. In many ways, what these people were doing was much of what people do at a restaurant when someone, a waiter, or a waitress drops their dishes and someone yells, job opening, right? Uh, that is exactly what these people are doing, all right? Paul has been removed in prison and there is a job opening and they are proclaiming the gospel essentially to take his job, essentially to steal the people that, that he had influence over and they want to turn the heat up on Paul out of strife, out of envy, just so that he is removed and out of the picture. How bent, how awkward, and how messed up is this? Proclaiming a message of peace and of good news and yet only to make it worse for somebody else. Just so they could take his influence and his leadership. And So Paul says, hey, here are my circumstances. Externally, internally, uh, there are a lot of constraints on me. Things are difficult right now. But what Paul is going to do and what he's going to see in the midst of his circumstances are not just the constraints of his chains, but ultimately he's also going to highlight the achievements of his chains. Ultimately, what Paul is going to do and what he's going to help us see is that in the midst of circumstances that often seem difficult and trying, Paul will see and he's going to help us see that ultimately God is still active in those things when it would seem that God is limited, God is at work. For chains that would have, in a sense, showed that God and his purpose and his mission was on hold, Paul say, no, no, no. When it seems like God is limited is actually when he's really at work. In fact, God is working in ways that I could never have imagined through this experience. And notice what he says are the achievements of his chains. He says again in verse 13 that his predicament has become well known throughout the whole praetorian garden to everyone else. He's Eventually, he's appealed to Caesar. He's going to get a hearing before Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire at the time. The highest man in the land because of his arrest. He's going to have the greatest, uh, in a sense, opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ that anyone could have had. And there is no way he's getting in front of Caesar apart from being arrested and appealing to Caesar. In fact, the Praetorian Guard were not just those that, in a sense, were watching prisoners, but they were an incredibly privileged class of officers in the empire. They were those that not just watched over prisoners, but they were, in a sense, some of the most strategic, some of the most influential leaders and officers in the empire. That there would be times and periods of history in which these officers really would have greater influence and power over the emperor, and the emperor would have to bend his knee to them. So Paul says, hey, it is even amongst them that I've had a witness and opportunity to speak, and my imprisonment uh, has had an impact in the world that I could never have imagined. (laughs) Paul says, my imprisonment, what was seemed to be constraining, actually was blowing up uh, the audience to this message that I could never have imagined. In fact, he goes on, he says, it's not just in the world, but even in the church, it's having an impact. He says in verse 14, and then most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I I thought this week of of Jesus Christ when he was arrested and Peter, who was denying him, that when the heat got turned up on the followers of Christ, the disciples bailed. And yet here, fascinating, just a few uh, years later, as the apostles have begun to build ministry and as the church has emerged, here is the apostle Paul who is under arrest and yet his followers are not flaking and are not bailing. Like they're all the more coming to the forefront. When the heat got turned up on Paul, his followers in the church of Philippi followed right in behind him and were even more bold in line of what was going on. The heat got turned up and yet they kept coming and they kept uh, taking even greater ownership of this mission. We're going to come back to this idea a little bit at the end of the morning, but what you're going to see that's fascinating to me is that in the midst of it, and since Paul's seeming removal from the mission, here comes the church taking greater ownership of this mission and following in behind him. Then in his removal, things did not stop because he built something that wasn't attached to him. We'll come back to that and talk about that here at the end of the morning, but you see the church stepping up, really not just stepping up, but speaking out and taking far more courage and they're speaking and proclaiming this message. And he says of them, verse 16, they were doing it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul was charged with a mission that in his imprisonment, they realized had become limited in some sense. And so the church steps up and now Paul is in audiences that he never would have been in. And the church has stepped up in ways they never would have been in apart from Paul's removal and his imprisonment. And so Paul looks at the circumstances and he says, look at all that God is doing. In the midst of what seemed constraining, and yet God is at work and He's doing even greater than anything we could have imagined, and our circumstances don't fully tell the story. In fact, He's going to say at the end here, something was happening even in His own life. He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. It wasn't just that something was occurring within the world and within the church, but even in Himself. He says that there were some people who were proclaiming Jesus because they hate me. And some are proclaiming Jesus because they love Jesus. And whether they're doing it out of whatever motive, I don't care. But Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul had an inward joy that was apparent and visible despite anything that was going on around him. His circumstances were not dependent on his joy and on his experience and on his walk with the Lord. Why was that? Why in the midst of all this heat and difficulty could Paul find a joy no matter his circumstances? Why could he do that? What was true of him? I think ultimately what we're going to see is that he had, in a sense, uh, a singular perspective on life. He had a lens on which he saw all of life that defined what he saw and that allowed him to find joy. Ultimately, I think the lens that he saw all of life was the gospel. The gospel defined his life, it defined his identity and his calling, and it defined the entirety of how he saw life. If you guys ever been to any of those 3D movies, you can walk in and if you forgot to get the glasses, you can still see the movie in normal 2D but if you had the glasses, all of a sudden things began to pop out of the screen coming at you that you never saw or would have seen apart from the glasses. Ultimately, I think Paul's lenses of the, allowed, of the gospel allowed him to see life and to see things pop out and emerge that he never would have seen apart from that particular lens. In fact, it is that particular lens that allowed him to find joy no matter what he was walking through. I want to ask you guys this morning, what defines your joy in life? What defines whether you've had a good day or a bad day? What is the ultimate determiner of your happiness and of your significance and of your joy? Is it completely conditioned and dependent on your circumstances or is it something more? Paul is going to say in Philippians chapter 4, and in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Paul will say it doesn't matter if I had nothing or if I had everything. I've learned the secret of being content and of finding a joy that is not dependent on my circumstances. Because Paul saw an irony in his circumstances. That ultimately his circumstances were not that which ultimately defined the experience he had with the Lord, nor nor defined exactly what God was doing in the world. In fact, if you see the world and you see life through the lenses of the gospel, all of a sudden you see life completely different. Because the gospel itself is absolutely defying to your instincts and to your common sense. It is absolutely defying to your intuition. One of my favorite quotes comes from St. Augustine and he says this, Man's maker was made man that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, the fountain might thirst, the light might sleep. That the way would be tired on its journey and that truth might be accused of false witnesses. That the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation of the world be suspended on wood, and that strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded and that life might die. The gospel itself turns all of life upside down. The reality and the truth of the gospel completely redefines how you and I see and experience life because the gospel defies circumstances, it defies our intuition, and it defies our common senses. It is absolutely defying to our common sense that God would have to send his own son who would live a perfect life and that he would have to die in our place. It is absolutely defying to our intuition that we've so offended God that God would have to send his own son who would die an incredibly painful, excruciating, and shameful death because that is how greatly we've offended our maker. The gospel completely redefines and sets up how you and I see life. It absolutely redefines it in a way that we could never have imagined. I think as we think about the gospel and we think about what God has done, I think it totally causes you and I to see life in ways that are not so true on the surface. That when we see life through the gospel, ultimately life is never what it seems on the surface. That when you and I see life through the gospel, life is never what our circumstances tell us because God is always at work and he's always doing something often when we can never experience it and when we most want to question it. One of my other favorite quotes that some of y'all have heard before comes from a guy named Alistair McGrath and he says this, speaking of difficulty, speaking of circumstances and what do they mean? He says this, experience or our circumstances cannot be allowed to have the final word. It must be judged and shown as deceptive and misleading. The cross draws our attention to the sheer unreliability of experience as a guide to the presence and the activity of God. When you and I most wonder where he is and why he's not present or doesn't seem to be at work, that is when he's often working in the most powerful ways beyond our own imagination. God is active and he's present in the world quite independently of whether we experience him as being so. Experience declared that God was absent from Calvary at the cross only to have its verdict humiliatingly overturned on the third day. McGrath makes the point so powerfully that when you and I are walking through circumstances that seem to defy and sense, where is God and what is God doing? Uh, circumstances never have the final word on what God is doing. In fact, for Paul, they didn't, which is why he could say in the midst of this, that his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Because when you and I see life through the lenses of the gospel, life is never what it seems. Our circumstances are never what they seem. I don't know if you're walking through things even right now where you wonder, Where is God? Where is he right now? Where where was he this past Christmas break when something happened? Where was he in your childhood when something happened? And ultimately, I'll tell you guys, the the answer to the question is, I don't know. I don't know exactly where God was. I don't know exactly how God is using those circumstances for the furthering of his purposes. I don't know how you find evil and you find tragedy and you ask where God is. And I don't know how you get an answer from that. That's one of the hardest things there is. And I think for many of us, this is a shared experience. We all wonder in the midst of our circumstances, what is God doing? Where is he? Why does he seem so far? Why does he seem so silent? It would have been on that day on the hill at a cross when Jesus was crucified that everyone would have said, where is God? How is this turning out anything like we thought for the savior, the lamb of God to be crucified on the behalf of humanity? We could never have imagined what God was doing. And we surely couldn't imagine what God would do three days later when his son, Jesus Christ, would be resurrected from the grave, showing that he had the power over death and sin and the ability to forgive sins. For for those that were at the time, they only had to wait three days to see that verdict at the cross overturned. (laughs) The reality for many of us in the midst of our circumstances is we often have to wait far more than three days to see the meaning and the significance of some of our circumstances. In a moment like this in the cross or the moment like the book of Philippians, we get moments in the scriptures where God in a sense pulls back the fabric, pulls back the curtain, and he shows us exactly what he's doing and how he's using circumstances. For some of us in our lives, God doesn't necessarily do that. God doesn't necessarily always pull back the curtain and show us exactly what he's doing and how he's working behind the scenes. The scriptures come in to say, even when you cannot see, and even when the curtain is not pulled back, trust me because I'm good and I'm faithful and I'm at work. Whether you can see me or not. And I think for Paul, he really could hang in for two purposes and two reasons. One was, he saw the life through the lenses of the gospel, and it changed everything. second thing is, I think he had a steady patience on God. He had a steady patience. The apostles and the disciples waited three days after the cross. Paul is going to wait even longer. Notice what he says of his own circumstances. As we look at verse 19 and on, what Paul is going to do is he's going to shift from what God has done to what he expects God to do. He's going to shift from God's working in the past through his circumstances and he's going to begin to shift toward what he expects God to do looking forward. Notice what he says in verse 19. And yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What is Paul saying? I think he's shifting from the past to the future, and he's concerned with something that is absolutely human. All right, I think as he awaits trial and as he looks at his own uh, potential uh, chance to be sentenced to death, I think he's concerned about his reputation. I think he's concerned with what people are going to think about him. He says in verse nineteen, and I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Uh, the word deliverance there is the same Greek word that we get salvation. And so is Paul saying this will turn out for my salvation? Is he saying that this will turn out so that I can escape hell and get heaven? I don't think that's the lens with which he's talking. I don't think he's talking in that regard. I think he explains exactly the kind of deliverance or rescue he's hoping for uh, in verse 20. It says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. Remember the context. Paul is on trial for the gospel. He's on trial as an apostle. And the question he has is, what are people going to (laughs) think? I think for many of us, we put Paul on a great pedestal uh, and and have difficulty uh, identifying with him. And yet here, I think you see a quite human part of him. He's saying, and since I'm confident that I'm going to escape shame, I'm confident that my reputation won't be dragged through the mud. But I want you guys to notice the timetable of his confidence. Notice he says that he thinks this is going to happen, uh, notice at the very end, uh, whether by life or by death. I think Paul, as he looked at his trial that was approaching, I think he was completely aware that this trial could lead toward his release from prison or could even lead toward his death. And I think he was perfectly aware and perfectly willing to be patient enough on God to show the purpose and the the significance of his circumstances, not just over three days, but even if it meant toward his death, the entirety of the remaining aspect of his life that he had. And so he says, whether in my life or in my death, I'm confident that I'm going to be delivered from shame. Why? Why was he so confident that even if he was going to be crucified in this trial and killed, why was he so confident that his reputation would emerge unscathed? In fact, I think it's going to emerge unscathed, not in the temporal time immediately following his death, but I think he's looking at a much more longer time and longer span. As He says, notice in verse 21, notice who his reputation is locked up with and hand in hand with. Again, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Notice whose reputation is his linked hand in hand with is Jesus Christ. And so as he looks at his trial and he wonders about his own reputation being vindicated, I think what Paul realized was this, that his own vindication was not going to come as a result of self-justification, but it was going to come as a result of Christ's exaltation. As he stood trial, and as he worried about his own reputation, he realized it wasn't going to be saved by self-justification, but it was going to be saved by Christ's exaltation. His own reputation and his own life is so linked up and so tied with Jesus Christ, there is no way to separate them apart, which is why he concludes in verse 21 with one of the most powerful statements of the entire book. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of the most powerful moments in the book, and yet I have no idea what he's trying to say. (laughs) And that it is absolutely defying to our common sense and our intuition. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This is one of the great paradoxes of the book. In a sense, what is Paul saying? What gain does there ever come from death? What gain does there ever come from sacrifice and suffering? And Paul says there was great gain to come even in death because the entirety of his life was Jesus Christ. The entirety of how he saw his life, the entirety of the purpose was to worship and to make Jesus Christ known. And so that was the lens by which he saw the entirety of his life. And so even death itself was not fearful to him because he saw even in his death, Christ could use that to accomplish his purpose even at a grander scale. And if that was what God wanted to do, so be it. Paul's going to make a statement here in verse 21 that I just, in a sense, recoil from. That is really hard. That is really hard to grasp and really hard to believe. In fact, this isn't the only paradox we find in our scriptures. I love uh, the Bible because they're full of them, right? Uh, Things that just defy our experience and our own intuition. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the persecuted. (laughs) What is the blessing that comes with persecution? You have to lose your life to find it, Jesus will say in the Gospels. In order to find your life, you have to lose it. That makes no sense to me whatsoever, right? And the scriptures are full of statements like that that just defy our common sense and our own intuition because the spiritual life does that. The spiritual life defies everything that our instincts say because God is doing things so far beyond what you and I can see and sometimes even what you and I are experiencing. And so Paul will say, when I look at my life, when I even look at my death, I'm so confident of my reputation and even of my legacy because it's tied inextricably to Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 21, he says, essentially as he moves on, it's not just that he has a steady patience, but we're going to see that he's going to make a sacrificial production. That his entire life is a sacrifice in which he's going to produce his life into someone else. And so he's going to say, if if Jesus wants to take me in this trial, so be it. But if he's going to leave me here, here's the purposes that Jesus has for me. Notice what he says moving on in verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. And yet, despite his desire to be with Christ, he realized Christ has him here, and so he says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul will say, if Christ is going to take me in my death, so be it. But if he's going to leave me here with my life, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sacrifice my life and produce my life into somebody else. And so he saw himself in the purpose of his life to leave behind a legacy and to leave behind a building and a church and a kingdom that would be established and that would continue after him. One of the things I love about Philippians uh, chapter one here is that Paul is going to get a sneak preview of his legacy. He's going to get a sneak preview of the life that he's going to leave behind. As he's in prison and he's in a sense removed from the picture, what he sees and what he notices is that those that he's built his life into are going to follow in right behind him and in fact take the place even more greatly than the one that he held. Then in his absence, in his removal, comes the church behind him and emerging not just in the cities that he traveled, but throughout Asia Minor and throughout the world. And what gets left behind in his life is something even greater than anything that he did in his life. Ultimately, because why that is is because he invested his life into something that wasn't just about him. If you invest your life into things that are just about you, and when you depart, those things are over. If your life is invested in something that is primarily about you, when you depart, whether it is in your death or even if you invested your life here at Texas A&M or at Blend for something that is entirely about you, when you leave, there is no lasting value. There's no lasting impact of your time here. What I want to ask you this morning is, what are you investing your life into this semester? What is it, the kingdom that you are trying to build, what is it you are trying to build up and see established? And ultimately, let me ask you the question is, when you guys leave this place, what gets left behind? Paul gets a sneak preview in his imprisonment that what gets left behind is something even greater than he saw in his presence. And really, that is the true significance of a leader. It is in a leader's absence that we really see this, the significance of his time and not in his presence. Not what was there, not what was, not what was existing when he was leading, but what was existing when he takes off. Even for Apple, in the midst of all their greatness, what we'll see truly of Steve Jobs and the book that will be written about him is not the one that's written right now, but will be the one that's written in 10, 20, 30 years later when we see what he left behind. Did he raise up others around him that would take the charge and carry on or did he just build it and maintain power and hold it himself? For Paul, for the Apostle Paul, he built his life into others and handed things off to them so that they could be raised up and that they could be trained and carry on even greater to things that he could never have done himself. I want to ask you this morning, as we've talked even the last few weeks, the charge that Paul gave, that Christ gave to Paul, and the charge that Paul gives to you and I is to make disciples. Uh, Matthew 28 uh, All authority in heaven has been given so that you and I would be charged to go out and declare Jesus Christ to all people, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the great commission that Jesus gave the first apostles of the first century church that is passed on to you and I. And the question is are we building that kingdom? Are you investing your life this semester into others that you will leave behind? Some of you guys are nearing graduation, and the question is not just what well, you will graduate. The question I have for you this morning is what are you going to leave behind here? Have you built something and have you invested your life in a way this semester into something and in your time here at ANM or Blend that you're going to leave something behind that will be far more lasting than just your own time here? I want to challenge you to make disciples. Uh, to build yourself into other people and to have an impact that will be far more eternal than anything you can do uh, as you build your life into others that will carry on the message of Jesus Christ. And you cannot make disciples until you are a disciple. So I'm continuing to challenge you to walk with Jesus Christ. And even if you've just entered this thing called the spiritual life, maybe just this past week was the first time you believed in Jesus. It is not too early even to begin to speak of the faith that you have. (laughs) Even if you were just an infant in the spiritual life, you have something to pass on and something to share with somebody. So even as a church, there's like all kinds of opportunities that we want to extend to you, not just in college ministry, but you have opportunities all throughout this church to make an impact and leave a legacy behind. Uh, there's children's ministry, there's youth ministry, there's college ministry, there's all kinds of areas that you can serve and you can invest yourself so that you have an impact even when you take off from this place. Ultimately, I realize as you guys come through this place, it, it, once I leave this place in two years, there may be not a student who knows me. It could be two years after my departure and no one may know me. And my significance and my impact is not seen in what's here now, but it will be what's here later. And your impact is the same. Not what's here during your time, but what is going to be here in your departure because the significance of a leader is never seen in his presence. It's always seen in an absence. Great quote I ran across this week. Often the crowd does not recognize a leader until he is gone and then they build up a monument for him with the stones they threw at him in his life. All right. I think often the greatness of a leader is never seen when he's present. And it may be that your impact here will not be seen while you are here, but it will be seen when you take off. I want to challenge you to invest yourself into something that will be left behind into the lives of others that you may not know now. And so if you're looking for a place to serve, come talk to us. Small groups are a great spot just to begin that process, but there's all kinds of opportunities to serve in our church body. Children's ministry, youth ministry. Uh, If you want to be mentored, if you want to be discipled, if that's what you're looking for, come talk to us. We'd love to make that happen as well. We want to see you stretched in your faith so that you have an opportunity to begin to stretch someone else in their faith. As someone is grabbing you and pulling you up as you're grabbing someone else and pulling them up with you, leaving a legacy in the next generation that follows behind you guys. We say this all over and over again, but as a church, our mission statement is this to raise up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. The opportunity we have in this small little place is to have an impact throughout the world through you guys, because eventually you guys are going to take off from us and our hope and our mission and our desire is to see you guys have an impact wherever you guys take off but also to leave something behind as that continues on from one generation of students to the next. I want to ask you guys, I want to challenge you guys to be a part of that. There's all kinds of opportunities, small groups or ministries here in the church or all kinds of opportunities, even on campus. I want to challenge you guys, invest yourself somewhere to make an impact in someone that you will leave behind. Let me pray for us. Father God, I give you great thanks uh, for this passage. I give you great thanks that even in circumstances that defy our, our our sense of uh, what you're doing or even your presence, I-, I thank you for the reminder that there's great irony in our circumstances. That often when they seem most constraining, you are often most at work. Uh, that when, when you seem most absent, you are most present. When you seem most inactive, you are often the most powerful. And, and Father, I pray this morning in the midst of whatever the things that we might be walking through in the midst of difficulties, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to find a new joy. I pray that you'd allow us to find a joy that's attached to your exaltation and not our own. Uh, a joy that's attached to your exaltation and not our own comfort or not our own success or our fame. Pray that you'd allow us to stoop low and serve to be great, that you'd allow us to die to live, that you'd allow us to give our lives away so that we could find them. Father, I pray that you would give us great sense of purpose. You'd give us a sense of where we could direct our lives and that you would give us great opportunity to have an impact in this place. we give you great thanks that you've extended to us all that we need that every heavenly blessing has been extended to us that know Jesus Christ. And I pray if there are some here this morning that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would encounter them. I pray that you would draw them near and that you would show them the extreme lunacy of the gospel. That by grace, you would give us something so extravagant for absolutely nothing because we couldn't earn it. That you would die in our place because we could not earn your favor. And in your death, the death of your son, Lord, you forgive us and you wipe away the debt. We have an opportunity to be reconciled to you. We've never trusted you for the first time, Lord. I pray that that could be this morning, that you could draw us to know you, that you could draw us into a relationship and that we'd find in you a forgiveness and a freedom from guilt, from shame that we've never found from anywhere else. For that you would allow guilt and shame not to hold us back, but that you would allow us to find in you a love that we would run to, that we'd find in your embrace a love that is so extravagant, so disarming and so overpowering. For those of us that know you, Lord, I pray that you would charge us, that you would challenge us, that you would give us eyes to see an impact that we could have a place that we can serve, uh, an individual that we can love and that we can build our lives into, Lord. But that you allow us to be disciples and to make disciples, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.